The way that I was when I was drinking, it wasn't actually aligned with who I am as my values as a person mm -hmm. at all. And that's a huge cause of mental anguish and anxiety and, and also being a sensitive person. So having to wake up the next day and go, oh my God, yeah. like I've really fucked up, you know, not really being able to sweep it under the rug, beating myself up for it for days and weeks. Yeah, it, that was tough. Mm -hmm. And there was a long, I mean, 20 years of that. From Thrivalist, this is the Sober Not Sorry podcast with your host, Lucy Quick. As the leading destination to change your relationship with alcohol in an empowered way, Thrivalist will help you free yourself from the alcohol trap and create a life so wondrous you won't want to escape from it anymore. Welcome to the first ever episode of Sober Not Sorry. Oh my goodness, this has been a long time in the making. I'm so excited about having this new way of communicating and supporting you and the Thrivalist community. In today's first episode, I sit down with one of my best friends, Kate Green, to discuss my story of going from a messy blackout drinker to who I am today, a sober, present, happy, fulfilled woman living a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I mean it when I say that. Today, I sit down with Kate, who I've been close friends with for 30 years, nearly. She knows me really well, so she knows how to ask me the right question so that I can share my story as authentically and as raw as possible. So here we go. I hope you enjoy the episode. First of all, thank you for doing this pleasure I'm so grateful you know you're busy and working your butt off right now so <laughs> thanks for, for being here today and yeah taking a deep dive into my sober story yeah no I'm excited to hear all about it and I'll let you tell your story so okay why don't you just start from the very beginning at your childhood and where it all began so I grew up in Brisbane I was born in Geelong but we had to move when I was a little baby for my dad's work. And I grew up in Brisbane until the age of eight, which was such a beautiful place to live as a little kid. The warm weather, mm. the weatherboard houses, yeah. our school had a swimming pool. So we spent our Fridays swimming at school and having fun with our friends and lots of Noosa holidays and sunshine and just a beautiful first eight years of my life. And we moved to Melbourne in 1990 for dad's job. Grew up in Sandringham and had a really beautiful childhood, just going down to the beach and hanging out with friends and always out riding on our bikes in the street. You know, I was a really happy kid and I have beautiful memories of horse riding with my dad and playing the violin. My parents were really good at pushing me to be better. I had an older sister, I still do, but I have mm -hmm. an older sister. She's six years older than me. Her name's Virginia. Mm -hmm. We're pretty close during those years because she is quite a bit older than me. You know, as she turned into a teenager, I was still a little kid and she kind of went off and did her own thing. And I think she moved to Byron Bay when I was a young teenager. Mm -hmm. But I remember always being pushed to be something. And this was great until I turned 14 and became a teenager. And I wasn't, you know, my interest changed. I was suddenly really interested in hanging out with my friends way more on the weekends. And 
I didn't want to ride horses all weekend, every weekend. I wanted to be at hanging at people's houses and doing all those silly things that we did back then. I think this time in my life, that sort of early teenage years, I changed a lot. And my mum always, I mean, my mum used to say, gee, I was a terrible child. Mm -hmm. That was like the dialogue I had growing up. You were such a bad, naughty child. Mm -hmm. And then I went through this period of being quite a good child. And then I got to my teenage years and I was horrific again. Mm -hmm. What do you think caused that? I think I was desperate for someone to like really tune into me on an emotional level and ask me, like, how are you? What do you need? And I'm a very sensitive person and I am an emotional person. And I think my parents were busy. Mum, I mean, my mum worked night shift as a nurse. So she was like slaving her butt off mm-hmm. to make this happy house. My dad had a big career in publishing. So he just spent a lot of time traveling. Refle- like as an adult and reflecting back, especially on this sober path that I've been on, I really think that I needed for someone to really get to know me and ask me, okay, so what do you want to do? What's important to you Mm -hmm. rather than being told you should do this and if you don't do this, we'll be disappointed. And so that's not to say my parents are to blame, but, you know, and you've got to think about generationally, like they were raised in a quite harsh environment, you know, a lot of expectations on them as as kids to be, you know, more than what is capable for a child, what children are capable of. Mm -hmm. And so this was when I really started to spiral and I look back at those years and I've actually got this diary and it's horrific. And it's like, I hate my parents. I hate my life. I want to die. Mm. And I used to wrote, write this really quite morbid poetry mm. about like feeling really lost, unloved, really hating myself. And often, you know, obviously a lot of that is hormonal. As a young woman, the hormones go crazy. But I think I genuinely felt really unworthy or it's just this feeling of emptiness and sadness Mm -hmm. and it's like a a lonely feeling trying to find who you are in the world yeah Yeah. not knowing yeah and so what this led to I believe was you know we all experimented with alcohol Mm -hmm. this was just something that just you know happens and there's no way around it but for me that first those first experimental times were like oh my god it feels so good Mm -hmm. like I remember stealing sample car off my parents sample car gross <laughs> alcohol trolley and the girlfriend that I was doing it with at the time just being like I want more and she being like I'm done you know this is too much I feel sick whereas I was like I need more that was great right. and that was like pretty much how I went into my drinking years which was pretty much 14 15 16 I mean those years yes I had a life and I you know did okay at school and I had a lot of extracurricular activities on and all of this, but when I, when we drank on the weekends, I was the one that was like really messy. I think do there's you remember a, that? I do. I think there's an element of freedom that we come into as teenagers. We're transitioning from this place of being told what to do by our parents and having really no freedom at all to coming into this stage where we're becoming young adult. And then all of a sudden we all hang out together. We get together in groups. We have freedom on the weekend. And then we have this thing called alcohol that we all do together and we all become a different sort of person. So it's as teenagers, we're seeking to figure out who we are. Some just really get into it a lot more than others. And it's hard to control when you don't know who you are when we're just growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And when it feels like for me, it was filling a hole. I never felt like I kind of fitted in too well. I mean, that's not true. I did have very close friendships and groups and, but it it was a sense of not feeling comfortable in my own skin. It's interesting now though, the way that teenagers are drinking less. It's like, is it, is it because of the way that they're being 
raised like I think so yeah. yeah I think that's part of it I think that there's a lot more awareness there's a even sometimes a deeper connection between kids and parents mm. that maybe we didn't always experience there was always you know because generationally our grandparents came from a completely different place they raised our parents in a certain way and and then that lessens and then I think as time goes on it you know we become more connected with our parents in a better way I think yeah yeah so anyway spent my teens you know like pretty much every I feel like Aussie kid at back in the 90s or, yeah, the 90s, which was just getting blackout drunk most weekends. Mm -hmm. But I have these, like, memories of me being the more extreme one. Maybe not every time, but it was like I was the one that would go crazy. It was like I had a different personality. Yeah. 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 You definitely took it to the extremes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was fun. Yeah. It was fun. But the thing that we didn't realize is that it's damaging. Yeah. It can be damaging and it sets up habits as well. Yeah. And also the the aftermath, like yeah. if for someone who's already feeling lost mm. and uncomfortable in their own skin, yeah. to then be dealing with the extreme anxiety yeah. that comes from over drinking mm. and trying to navigate all of that. It's just, it's such a, a perfect storm of situations to just leave you to feeling even worse about yourself I can't believe like thinking about how much we were drinking and even like dabbling in drugs and stuff and then going and studying and doing these exams and it just seemed like there was nothing else to do as young teenagers that was what we did we went to school we got together on the weekends we hung out we got drunk we had fun we felt bad we felt invincible and then we just did it again and again and again Mm. year after year after year but that all accumulates yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I always hooked up with guys as well. That mm. was like something I learned really young was the attention from guys made me feel better about myself. Made you feel seen. Made me feel seen. And yeah. It made me, yeah. Yeah. And so that was another thing, like falling into these relationships with boys that I really actually didn't like. Well, I liked them, but I certainly didn't want to be in a relationship with them. But then I was just in a relationship with them mm-hmm. and getting that validation of, well, I am an okay person if someone wants to be in a relationship with me. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was like the teenage years and also grappling with quite extreme anxiety. Like I think back to those years of having that feeling. I remember that feeling in my tummy all the time, that anxious feeling just mm-hmm. at school and yeah, all the time and it not being like treated or my mum did take me to a psychologist once and we had one kind of session, but it wasn't really resolved. What do you think that was from? I think that I was just, I mean, I just had anxiety. My mum had anxiety too. So mm-hmm. obviously being raised by an anxious person, you learn to be anxious yourself. Mm-hmm. I think it came from, I think there was like a biological part of me that was just anxious, maybe brain chemistry caused by my drinking as well. Mm-hmm. I had periods where I felt okay and felt better. Like I remember, so going into my 20s, I started to have confidence in myself again. I think I don't really know why. I don't know where that came from. And a lot, you know, a lot of it came from the way I looked, mm-hmm. which sounds so weird, but mm-hmm. it's important to us as teenagers. I mean, it's everything. Yeah. yeah. When I was looking and feeling literally skinnier, I had so much more confidence and I felt invincible. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go through periods of putting on weight and my confidence would fall through the floor and which is so strange. But after a series of, well, I had a couple of failed relationships in my early Mm twenties, I moved over to London and you know, I went over, I had so much confidence. I was so excited. You know how we often, I mean, you and I talk about manifestation from coming from a place of high self-worth and feeling really good. Mm-hmm. And I just had this period of like, everything was falling into place. 
moved to London, found an amazing apartment, had got all of these job offers, you know, investment banks. Mm -hmm. I had three, I remember three on the table, Google, Mm -hmm. which I turned down, which is one of these like sliding door moments Mm -hmm. and two other investment banks Mm -hmm. and, you know, getting this job and then, you know, everything falling into place. And then I would self-sabotage without even knowing it. And so my drinking became a problem at work. Mm -hmm. And that was something, I think I'd been there a couple of months working for an investment bank and my friend and I actually had a formal warning because we'd gone out and gotten really drunk and made fools of ourselves. And we drank very similarly. So we were really, (laughs) we were amazing friends, but terrible when we went out. And so I just kept getting into these situations where I had everything I had, the world was at my feet, anything I wanted Mm. and I'd blow it up Mm -hmm. by doing something stupid. Mm -hmm. I've met a guy who was in London who who was an Aussie guy. He's from Melbourne. You know him. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, I'd had the warning from friends. Don't mm-hmm. hook up with him. He's going to hurt you. He's a player. He'll break your heart. And, of course, I ended up in a relationship with him, a serious relationship, and living with him mm-hmm. and only to blow that whole thing up through my drinking. And he was a big drinker as well. So we would have these explosive fights. There'd be so much drama. I'd be moving out. He'd be moving out. I'd be moving in. All sorts of chaos. Mm-hmm. And I created it, you know, and I look back. I remember sitting in this house in London and he'd, we'd had a massive fight and he'd gone out and I was Googling like, what is wrong with me? I was trying to figure it out. Like, what is wrong with me? Why do I feel so empty and lost? And there's a hole in me. And I was actually exploring getting into some kind of religion. At that point, I didn't really understand too much about spirituality. But what was wrong with me was that I was drinking and I wasn't dealing with my problems. I was going to say, what do you think, was it the alcohol that was the cause of all of this chaos? Or do you think that you were using alcohol to avoid feeling feelings or is it a bit of both I think it's a bit of both but I think that the alcohol it's like it's going to stop you from any form of personal development or growth Mm -hmm. and it's going to stop you from being able to take a deep dive into the why behind the feeling Mm -hmm. and that was what I was doing I was just masking yeah Yes. I mean, I had some anxiety and I had depression when I lived over in London and and I actually had periods where I didn't drink. I took months off. I think I did that twice. Mm-hmm. I really recognized I had a problem. So I took, actually my boyfriend said, you need to take a month off or I'll break up with you. <laughs> so I did. And I felt great. Mm-hmm. And I was really into the gym and everything was like good. And then I went back to drinking and, you know, it's just that cycle. And the fact that I had I didn't, it sounds ridiculous Mm. for me now, knowing what I know, to think that if I sat down, which I often did on my own on a Sunday afternoon, Mm. this is in London, it was something I always did, and drank a bottle and a half to two bottles of red wine on my own, I'm going to feel really fucking depressed and horrible tomorrow. But I just never drew the connection between my mental health and my drinking. Did you feel like you used to use alcohol as a sort of reward? Was it a reward? Like when things were going really well for you and you moved over to London, you had all these great paying jobs and you're experiencing, you know, a wonderful life overseas. Did you celebrate with alcohol a lot and think that that was just part of all of your success? That's, yeah. You know, the reward part of my drinking probably came later in life. Okay. I think, you know, after having kids, especially it becomes that, oh my God, I deserve this. I've had a really hard day. But yeah, I mean, I think there was an element of I deserve this Mm -hmm. because I'm working so hard and my life is intense and you make any excuse. Yeah. I definitely think that I was addicted and it was a socially acceptable 
thing. And not only that, I worked in an investment bank. There was not one, I mean, times have changed, but then everyone drank. Yeah. It was just what we did. Yeah. You know, it wasn't even a question. And if I had have said, I don't drink, people would have felt really uncomfortable about that. Yeah. And so I feel like, you know, I look back at that experience of London and it was amazing. I did so much travel and nothing too bad ever happened. There was so many close calls with my partying and, you know, being walking the streets on my own at four in the morning and all sorts of things. I was mugged at knife point in Barcelona on my way home from a nightclub and the guy stole my iPhone. Just, you know, all of these things, I think I'm so lucky I got off scot-free. And I feel like, you know, I'm focusing a lot on the negative. There were so many positive. I had so many beautiful friends and lots of travel and great experiences, but Mm -hmm. I kept sabotaging myself. Mm -hmm. I met a guy. (laughs) Do you remember the English guy I brought back to Melbourne? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fell in love five days before I left London mm-hmm. and he came over to Melbourne mm-hmm. and we did a little family trip for my mum's birthday, mm-hmm. which was so random. I'm here I've got this new guy that no one's ever met on holiday, a family <laughs> holiday. So random. I was in love with him. I mean, obviously I wasn't in love with him because I didn't know him, mm-hmm. but we were going to move back to London and in my mind I'm like, I'm going to do this right this time. I'm going to move back and start a home with this man. And everything was great. And then on this trip, I got really wasted and I don't even know what happened, but he saw a side to me. He saw my crazy side Mm -hmm. and my crazy side was from what people have told me because I don't actually know Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I've never seen it. And I'm grateful for that Mm -hmm. is just out of control, not being people trying to control me and not being able to. And maybe you can talk about my crazy side. Yeah. I I mean, I think I've said this to you before. I think innate you have a a lot of sort of powerful energy inside of you. And now that you're sober, that is channeled through some wonderful things. But when we were younger and when you were drinking, that would show itself in extreme versions of your personality in not a good way. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard for someone who's not like that. Yeah. The way that I was when I was drinking it wasn't actually aligned with who I am as my values as a person mm-hmm. at all. And that's a huge cause of mental anguish and anxiety and, and also being a sensitive person. So having to wake up the next day and go, oh, my God, yeah. like I've really fucked up, you know, not really being able to sweep it under the rug, beating myself up for it for days and weeks. Yeah, it, that was tough. Mm-hmm. And there was a long, I mean, 20 years of that. <laughs> yeah. And the anxiety just accumulates. Yeah. The anxiety accumulates. And so, yeah, so moving back to Melbourne, this guy went back to London without me, obviously. He didn't, he saw that side of me. He's like, I don't like that. Was there a conversation specifically had about that? He, I could tell from the moment the next day mm-hmm. after that event, which I don't, I still don't recall what happened, but I remember being down on the beach. This is in Byron Bay. Mm-hmm. My family wasn't there. They were in there. So we went and met my family after. But just like, he's like, I lost you. You were crazy. I couldn't control you. You were talking to a whole group of people. You were dancing with these people. And that was like 
I'm like, yeah, I know this is me. Mm-hmm. And I, it's so funny because I really didn't want to be that person. And I remember sitting at the, the beach hotel in Byron drinking white wine and thinking, oh, fuck, this is it. I'm, I'm gone. Like I'm losing myself. I could feel it. That moment of feeling like I was normal mm-hmm. and in control and yeah. having a glass of wine or two to, I am now turning into that other version of me. And yeah. once I turn into that, there is no way to get me out of it. Other than if you could lock me in a room, that would be okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm done. I'm gone and it's going to end up bad unless you take me home and lock me up, which was really hard for anyone to do. Yeah. And I remember that day and sitting at the beach hotel and looking at him and his friend was actually there. And then it's like pretty much a blackout from then on being at the beach. And he's like, I was chasing you down the beach. And and I think he had some pretty good values because he's like, I just don't, I don't want to be with someone like that. Yeah. And I was like, but that's not me. I promise. I've never really been like that before. <laughs> Something happened. Someone spiked my drink. And I could just see from that moment on, he's, he'd changed. Yeah. And I was talking to a girlfriend about this yesterday, one of the thrivalist ladies at the lunch. And I was saying, there are things that you can never take back. People will have perceptions of you that will never change. Mm-hmm. And that's what alcohol does. And not in a bad way, because obviously I'm all about, I really want to empower women to accept and forgive and move on and, and love themselves through all of this. Yeah. Well, that's the challenging part of alcohol because you can't change the past. No. But you can make decisions in the moment to avoid maybe some of the things that have occurred in the past that are leading us into a different direction. Do you mean like you can choose to forgive? Yeah, you can choose to forgive and choose to acknowledge that you'd made that choice in the past. And like you said, that's not who I am because you know that there is truly, truly a version of you that is not that. Mm. But then there's also a version of you that when alcohol gets involved, it brings out another side that you just don't feel like you have any control. It really comes down to control, doesn't it? I feel mm. like. Yeah. And that was just, I mean, I couldn't have had less control. Yeah. Once I was drunk, that was it. It was really a very extreme reaction. So he left. He left. He left. And thank God I didn't <laughs> go back to London in hindsight. Okay. And then he stayed. I had a very short window of being single. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When was it? Oh, it was a good eight months, a good eight months. And then I met my Mm ex-husband. From the beginning, I was drinking a lot. He was drinking a lot when we met. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of how we bonded. And so our relationship was kind of forged or created on getting drunk most not most nights but a lot of the a lot of the weeknights and then on the weekend and mm-hmm. and then spending the next day in bed watching movies a bit hungover eating crap that was kind of the start of our relationship and i think i really wanted i was only 27 but i really wanted to get married and have kids because to me that was acceptance and i was okay and again looking for external validation that I'm going to be, that I'm a normal person. Yeah. Maybe some stability as well. Stability. Yeah. And, you know, my ex, he he didn't hold me accountable and he didn't say, I think there's a problem. And maybe that was because he was also drinking or he was, he's just like that. You know, he didn't say that as his responsibility, but mm. I really clung on to this sense of safety that he gave me. Like he makes me feel not crazy. Mm-hmm. I've always felt crazy. Mm-hmm. Like that is the word. It was crazy. I felt crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But that only came out when you were drinking, right? It did. You know, I wasn't always bad crazy. Like there was crazy that was like fun, you know, running through the streets and so fun, doing silly stuff. And that was, yeah, if we were all on the same wavelength and I wasn't too pissed, it was like I hadn't crossed that line of like complete disaster. Mm -hmm. It could be a really fun night. Yeah. But it was Russian roulette. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. And selfishly, friends who are friends with people who love a drink, they're great people to be around socially mm. because they bring that fun and that sort of energy, but they don't have to deal with all of the feelings of anxiety and everything that comes with it the days after and then the relationship, you know, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So we went really quickly and, you know, this is all because of me. I put the pressure on to get married. Mm-hmm. I was like, I want a ring on my engagement on our one year anniversary. Okay. And I pushed him and he was like, yeah. And we got engaged in Vietnam, which was amazing on Halong Bay on a junk boat. And I remember we were so drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so drunk that I ended up taking all my clothes off and jumping off the boat in the middle of the night with other people, but I was the only one that took all my clothes off. And you weren't actually allowed to jump off the boats. No, I've done that before. And, right? and these poor Vietnamese guys trying to control me. Oh my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> I can't imagine. So yeah, got engaged and then we got married. It was actually about 18 months later, but just, you know, so many drunken events in between. Like even my engagement party, blackout. That was just consistently me showing up at least two, three times a month, blacking out. And the wedding was actually amazing. It was so fun. And I I had to really spend a lot of time preparing for myself not to drink too Mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. And I really stuck myself, stuck a, a rule in concrete, which was, I think it was like two or three champagnes. And that was it. Tonight is not a drinking night. Okay. And I stuck to it. So I didn't get too drunk. I think I was a little bit tipsy at the end, Mm -hmm. but it was like perfect. And then we got pregnant with Bonnie on our honeymoon. Mm -hmm. So very fast again. And I actually recall Ben wanting to like wait a bit, but I was like, nope, Mm -hmm. I want this now. And obviously no regrets because she's just the most incredible little thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) And so pregnancy was a great opportunity to not drink and a really happy time for me because we bought our first house. I was sober. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't making a fool of myself. I could trust myself. Was that easy for you not to drink during pregnancy? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was. And this is what a lot of ladies say. Mm-hmm. A lot of the thrivalist ladies will say, Naturally. I stopped for nine months without yeah. even thinking. Right. It's like, and that's not to say that I didn't drink. Stop. I did drink a little bit through that pregnancy. And at that point, in, doctors were saying it was okay to have one or two. Okay. Now they say zero. And if they had have said zero, I would have done that. And so I had a quite a traumatic birth with Bonnie and ended up with postnatal depression after she was born. And it wasn't like, again, I didn't really know what was going on. It was just, I didn't see a psychologist. I felt so depressed. I remember just crying every day and looking at her going, why am I not feeling that feeling of being a new mom and excitement that you think it's going to be? And it was just not it was the opposite. It was like, yeah, it was, I hate how I feel. And that was really tough. And my drinking kind of crept in. I remember a few glasses here and there. And then it was like, okay, this is actually quite fun to get pissed on a Friday again. And that was when we, my ex and I fell into that habit of Friday nights having a bottle between us. And then it was a bottle each and it just kind of crept up and up. And I remember being on holiday, she was five months old and I was still breastfeeding and I was using the breastfeeding app to make sure that it was all safe. But I knew that I was drinking too much on this holiday and my milk dried up. Like I could not get any more milk out of my boobs because I wasn't taking care of myself. I was drinking too much. And yeah, so I ended up weaning her. And then I look at that period between when Bonnie was a baby, like eight months to a year to when I got pregnant with Ted. So there was a good three years in there. 2015, 16, 17, they were my darkest times with drinking mm-hmm. and just my mental health really bad. And it was a combination of being 
our marriage was not healthy or happy. And we were both, I think we both felt that um, really disconnected and working in a really uninspiring, quite demeaning job forcing myself to go back full-time really quickly, which Mm. put too much pressure on. That's when it really ramped up and I started using it as a coping mechanism. So I would notice myself, like I was telling you before, that's probably when I started to drink the bottle to the bottle and a half of wine almost every night. The routine was through the bottle shop, come home, put the TV on, put Bonnie on the couch, pour myself a glass of wine, go outside and have two or three I take the bottle out with me, two or three glasses of wine and probably five ciggies, which is so gross. <laughs> and then come and go, okay, now I can do the mum stuff. Right. And making dinner and the bath and all of that, still being a present mum, definitely not blacking out before she'd gone to bed, but then often forgetting going to bed and having to get up the next morning and scrape myself out of bed and go to work, drop her at daycare and go and work in a horrible job. Mm. And it all kind of, you know, I talked about self-sabotaging before. Mm. There was a one job. I left that first full-time job and went to another job and I completely unraveled because there was a lot of drinking with this job. Right. So they saw the, the crazy Lucy came out at work events and even I had this horrible boss and one night I took it upon myself to call her a see you next Tuesday. Oh my God. My boss. One night? So we were we, out. You were out. Okay. And we were in a taxi together and I don't really know. I, it was a blackout again. Right. But all I remember is the next day I knew I'd done something bad. I woke up on that Sunday and I was like, oh, the, it was a Saturday because it was a Friday night work drinks. She used to drag me to work. I think she she didn't have many friends, this lady. Right. And she really wanted to drink with me. And I was like, I've got to go home. And then Ben would say, no, it's fine. Have a few drinks. It's fine. Right. But this one night I just went too far. And I remember, you know, ordering everyone shots, dancing when no one else was really dancing, just the crazy Lucy came out. Mm-hmm. And then on the Monday, so she texted me on the Sunday and said, we need to talk first thing Monday morning. And I was like, oh, God, what have I done? And then we sat in the office and she said, I think you've got a drinking problem. Really? And she said, you called me at see you next Tuesday. You were so out of control, so unprofessional. Everyone from work saw you. And I remember saying to her, I'm on medication. And I was actually on Zoloft at the time. And I on, I put that down as well. Being on Zoloft for those, you know, from when Bonnie was a baby to before Ted was born, the combination of antidepressants and alcohol is so bad. If you are ready to change your relationship with alcohol, then you're in the right place. The Thrivalist membership is a holistic approach to sobriety. It combines everything you need to free yourself from the alcohol trap and create the life of your dreams with coaching, community, and courses like the Signature Sobriety Course, which holds your hand and guides you through the process of building an incredible sober life. To save 20% off the Signature Sobriety Course, use the coupon SOBERNOTSORRY at checkout. Now, back to the episode. I was going to ask you about that because we noticed a difference in terms of, yes. you know, when we would all go out, you know, we were getting older. What age were we about when you had Bonnie? 30. Yeah. So, you know, we'd move past our teenage years and, you know, when you move into your 30s, you start to slow down with drinking. Some people do. But I think we noticed a different too, a difference when in the way that you were when you were drinking. And I can remember one night when we went out, we just had a quiet night with you, me and Em, around at Em's place, at her parents' place. Um. 
and you were drinking and you were actually hilarious, but not, not fun for you. You know what I mean? But it was so innocently funny. You were just being very funny and out of control, but it was a different version than what I'd seen you on. And I, and I think I remember speaking to you after and you were saying, I think it's because I'm on antidepressants and alcohol and antidepressants don't go well together. No. At all. I, I did see a doctor back then and it was just not the right kind of solution. Like you can't just go and take an antidepressant and not actually deal with what's going on, right. which is what I did and right. still kept drinking. Yeah. And it really, antidepressants just double the effect of alcohol. I was going to say, so how is it different when you're on it? When it on just them? really enhan- like increases the effects of alcohol, basically. Right you behave in a way that you're drinking almost double as what you are drinking, which I certainly did not ever need in my life. I remember that night and I remember not remembering Emma had gone to have a shower and had put me, she said, stay here. You can sleep on the couch tonight. Yeah. And then waking up and I had gotten an Uber home, but she said, how did you get out of my fence? Because the only way you could have gotten out of it is if you climbed over it because it was locked from the inside. And you need a, you need a pin. You need a pin or a key. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, you literally must've scaled the front fence. I think, yeah, I think you did. I think you either scaled like the side fence or the front fence. We couldn't figure it out. But total blackout. Yeah. And horrendous, like so scary. Well, you were just on your own level own level you're on your own level you're having your own fun in your own world doing your own things and yeah. that was like around the time of Kate's hen's party which was like a you know you look at the the highlight reel of the worst moments of my life in terms of alcohol and that was on there mm. the next day waking up and being like you know Kate had a, a number of my ex-boyfriend's partners at her hen's party who had all I'd had individual conversations with all of them mm-hmm. and said stuff that I would just Never say, you know, secrets and horrible things. Not offensive to them, I don't think. I mean, maybe calling people, see you next Tuesdays. I went through a stage of doing that all the time. Like that was my thing. Like, oh, you're a fucking, no, no, no. You know, like out of control. Mm -hmm. So not who I am as a person. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so what happened with the boss? So she called you in and she said that. And then what happened with his job? Well, so that was a job that I was really hoping to stay in for a long time. If you got into this organization, you could stay there for, for a long time mm-hmm. and be really comfortable and have a great career. Mm-hmm. But I blew myself up and she never extended the contract past the six months or whatever it was. And, you know, it took me, so during that period, we were also trying to get pregnant. Right. And it took a long time to get pregnant with Ted and right. finally getting pregnant with him. Again, it was like, oh, what a relief. Right. I don't have to drink for nine months. I can go back to my normal self again and not, it's almost like, and this is something that I've spoken to you about, but I, but I think we talked about today, but it's almost like I literally didn't know, and it's really common to have these, these thoughts, but I didn't know that not drinking was an option. Yeah. All of these years, like I didn't think that that, I thought that I had to try and work out how to be a normal drinker. Right. Rather than just quitting altogether. With, yeah. Right. And now knowing what I know about alcohol and the brain and the perfect storm of what causes alcohol addiction and alcohol use disorder, it's like I really didn't have a chance. Like I just was never going to be able to control it. Mm-hmm. And so being forced to not drink because you're pregnant, it's like such a relief. Yeah. It's like, oh, now I don't need to, to worry. I can just take this time to be myself. And it was really beautiful. He was born in July of 2018. And between July of 2018 to December 20, 2018, when I stopped drinking, mm-hmm. was a very fast like progression of my drinking. Yeah. It was very quickly. I had to wean him at six weeks because he had cow's milk protein allergy. Mm, So being forced to not breastfeed 
I was actually really enjoying that experience mm-hmm. with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gave me that opportunity to drink again. And so it came back and it came back really quickly. And thank God there wasn't enough time to do anything too. I mean, it could have got really bad, but thank God for that Christmas where I reached my rock bottom and decided to stop drinking because that was the end of my drinking. So what happened with rock bottom? So it was December 2018 and I was in, I reckon, my darkest place ever. Just the relationship was, I mean, it was really non-existent. We were co-parenting kids and, you know, living in a house and arguing. It was just there was not really any love or joy in our relationship. I was working in a job that I didn't like. I was just really unhappy person and I was drinking and, you know, drinking at that point probably a bottle. I, I remember my pattern was like a bottle and a half every second night because I'd have the next day off because I felt so seedy and I was smoke, a smoker too. So I'd often sit outside and smoke like, you know, 20 ciggies mm. in a row and drink. The next day I'd be like, just get through the day, eat a whole bunch of shit, mm-hmm. don't drink tonight. Mm wake up the next day feeling marginally better and then drink. And that was like the cycle that I was in. And we had a lot of financial stress at that time too. I mean, I think a lot of it I manifested through my own anxiety and, you know, everything was really hard. And I was drinking in Christmas Eve 2018. I remember I drank a lot. After I'd wrapped all the presents, I went and sat outside and drank on my own, which was like normally the way that I drank on my own outside with a pack of ciggies and a phone, texting or calling whoever would listen or respond. And the next morning, Christmas Day, was feeling horrendous. We were fighting, but and I, I went to my sister's house for Christmas Day and she had made Aperol spritz. So walked in and I had an Aperol spritz and then just went from there. And I remember at one point mum sort of saying to me, you're getting messy and being like, I'm fine. And just, yeah, that was just a very messy, crazy Lucy day in front of actually, you know, there was a not too many people there, thank God. My family, my sister, her husband and his mum and one of the other, my sister's friends and had a fight with Ben in the afternoon. And just, he, he actually took the kids home on his own. And I went to my friend's house who I was kind of not really, like I was invited, but not really. She'd said, come, but I didn't realize it was actually all her family and like older people. So I've rocked up there with no shoes on, just my phone my Christmas day dress and basically was just loud, crazy, belligerent, smoking. No one else was smoking. Just like messy. I broke her front fence as well. I don't know how. I fell on it. And got in an Uber and got Ubered home. And then the next morning, so every all of this is a blackout, by the way. It's all just been told to me. But the next morning, waking up and seeing an alert on my phone, first of all, being upstairs in the spare room and seeing an alert on my phone and it said, your account has been suspended, Uber, your account has been suspended. And I was like, contact us. And the weird thing is I saw the alert and then it went and then I couldn't find where it was. And every time I went into Uber, it just wouldn't let me in anymore. I was like, what the fuck happened? And it just set off this like intense panic in my body. Like, this is bad. Yeah, it was really bad. And it was like, when is this going to turn into you've drunk, driven and hit someone or, Mm. you know, you've dropped your child or something? Mm -hmm. Like not that I ever endangered my kids directly, but, you know, drinking endangers them indirectly anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, it was a real wake-up moment of like, fuck, this is getting too beyond. Mm. This is ridiculous. Right. And, you know, it was actually my sister planted a seed and she said have you ever thought about just not drinking and it's so interesting like hearing that 
the cracks are showing. But, you know, of course the cracks are showing. They've been showing my whole life. Yeah. But I was so afraid of hearing it from someone else. It was like a dagger in my heart. Even those words, have you ever thought of not drinking? Right. And so that wasn't the last time I drank. Mm -hmm. We had a wedding that you were at and this wedding, a really good friend's wedding, the whole lead up to it. And because I'd had that really drunken Christmas day and her wedding was on the 27th. So only a couple of days after Christmas. I remember still being like, still affected by what had happened on Christmas day. Mm -hmm. Highly anxious. Like in a really horrible state. My Mm -hmm. nervous system was fucked. And saying to myself, I have to moderate my drinking. And the girl whose house I'd been at, Mel's, was actually babysitting my kids for the wedding. Mm -hmm. And so I had to see her and I was like, I'm so sorry again. And she's like, it's fine. But I could see she was, and I said, I'm going to moderate my drinking today. Mm -hmm. You watch. I'm going to come home. I'll come home and relieve you at midnight and you can go home. Mm -hmm. Ben and I will be back after the wedding. Okay. And I wrote on the back of my hand or on the palm of my hand, like three champagnes water before water between every drink eat lots of food don't go outside and sit with all the smokers talk to the people who were sitting inside and I knew one of my best girlfriends was pregnant at that wedding spend time with her so I put a lot of energy into trying to drink normally at that wedding Mm -hmm. and as you know that did not happen (laughs) so that ended up in a blackout yeah I think what happens where where it all spirals is, you know, we have one evening altogether drinking, but I think where it becomes a problem is once anyone, especially someone that is addicted to alcohol, has a certain number of drinks, they seek more. And then energy of just drinking builds and builds and builds. And I think that's where it just spirals and chaotic things happen and that causes anxiety and stuff the next day. And I think that's probably what happened, you know, sequentially over, you know, the Christmas day situation and then the wedding situation. It was in close succession of just continuing to seek extra fun or whatever it is that turned out to be traumatic for you in the end. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun, but it was also really embarrassing. And I remember one of our friends, Megan, videoed me and I had this dress on with like long fluffy arms and I was dancing around this is at the after party and just like out of control and there's some pretty funny video footage of that night actually yeah and I do feel a little bit guilty too because you did say before friends without knowing they did they enabled it and I think it's quite a difficult thing to realize about when to say to friends or when you feel like you need to step in to say enough is enough or, or like you know what your sister did have you ever thought about not drinking yeah um, so I feel a little bit bad about that situation that we didn't step in and say do you need help from us is there anything that we can do or, or like have a you know deeper conversation about that don't need to say sorry because you you just didn't know better. You did what you knew you could do or thought you should do. Yeah. You know, there have been a couple of friends along the way that have said things, but it's interesting because one of your questions, I know you sent me some questions before, was what's one of the obvious things that, you know, people. About alcohol addiction. addiction that's that people, most, one of the most obvious things about alcohol and addiction that no one speaks about. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I was talking to David about this last night, your question, and it has to be that it's so hard for friends and family to know how to broach the topic with someone who has an alcohol addiction or a drinking problem. Yeah. It, it is so hard. Yeah. And firstly, because, I mean, a big factor, and this is not your f- reason for not broaching it with me, mm-hmm. but is because it 
often holds a mirror up to our own drinking. So someone who's got their own kind of relationship with alcohol that might be unhealthy mm. is not going to broach it because it shines a light on the fact that maybe they just think about their own drinking as well. Yeah. And that's a big thing that happens in families. But also, I mean, I mean, you didn't know the full story. No. I didn't know the level of anxiety that you were dealing with every day because of the things that were going on because of your drinking. I didn't know that. No. And not a lot of people do know that part mm. about you know, people's alcohol addiction. And I also think one of the elements around why friends or family don't fully hold people accountable for their addictions is because often unknowingly people can be quite protective over the addiction. So they don't want to let on too much because they know if they divulge intimate details then that would then cause close friends or family to step in and say, we need to do something about this or have a, a deeper conversation. So I think there is an element of protection mm. around that that sort of stops people from getting too involved. Yes. Yeah. An addict, I mean, it's a harsh word to use, but that's what we kind of what we are, is super defensive when anyone questions their addiction. Yeah. I would imagine that I would, I'm have, I can't really recall, but I'm sure there'd be people who would say, you know, we tried to sort of say stuff, yeah. but you just told us it was fine or yeah. I remember calling you after the wedding and saying, I was like, I think I have a drinking problem. Mm, and I remember, right. yeah. Right. And I said, oh. I think you were just gentle about it. You mm. were like, yeah, I do. You definitely didn't say, I think you do too. Yeah. But I think you said, okay, so what do you think you need to do? And that was like, so that was my sister had said that, made that comment. And she'd also pointed me towards a podcast where Ruby Warrington, who actually, she changed my life, this woman, her book, Sober Curious. That's right is amazing for anyone who's kind of got a toe in the water and who isn't ready to say I'm, I have a drinking problem, but it's you know, a good entry book. And listening to this podcast and Ruby basically says, let's stop worrying about whether or not you're an alcoholic. Because for me, that's what kept me stuck in my drinking for so long because I'm like, I'm not an alcoholic. Alcoholics, their lives are fucked. You know, I'm someone who's just cut stop drinking when they start. I don't have an off button. Yeah. But actually what that is, is that you do have a drinking problem. It's just not a severe alcohol use disorder. It's, well, actually I did have a severe, when I did the questionnaire from the diagnostic statistical manual, I was severe, 11 out of 11. But, you know, alcoholism has, in our minds, it has, it looks like something. It looks like someone who is sitting under a bridge with a brown paper bag. It looks like someone who gets done for drink driving and is physically addicted and needs alcohol in their system all the time, or they're unwell. You know, alcoholism, it's got many different shapes and sizes. And so letting go of that idea of, am I an alcoholic? was great because it was like, it actually doesn't matter. Is alcohol holding me back? Hell yeah. Is it making me feel anxious? Yes. Is it time to look at what life might be like without it? Yeah. And so that 31st of December, 2018, I remember sitting at my parents' farm and I'd said to someone, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a break. I think I said to my mom and dad, I'm just going to press pause for a month and see what happens. My sister. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. I can't really remember how long I initially wanted to stop for. I know it wasn't forever. Right. It wasn't until about six weeks in that I was like, okay, this, this actually can be forever. But I wrote in my journal, I'm going to, for the next 30 days, I'm going to not drink. I'm going to not, what was it? Drink, move my body, not drink, move my body and meditate. Mm. And that was it. And I was still smoking at that point. 
And then as the days came and went, I became stronger. And I was like, okay, well, today I'm actually thinking I might also try and eat a little bit better and drink a bit more water. And day sort of seven, I had gone back to the gym and I stopped smoking cigarettes. So it was just like a progression of cleaning my life up day after day after day after day. Right. Yeah, that was the beginning of the journey, the 1st of January 2019. And what did that look like in terms of your relationship? So Ben was still drinking. And so we ended up separating after I'd been sober for a year. And throughout that year, I'd gone on quite a huge transformation. So I'd gotten sober and then I'd started to do the work. We talk about the work being really taking a a deep dive into our emotions and our mental well-being and looking at those root causes and trying to understand why I felt the way that I felt and used alcohol. And so we go on this journey of self-actualization or trying to become a better version of ourselves. And I didn't feel like he was on that journey with me. He certainly wasn't at a place of being ready to kind of talk about deeper problems. That's not to say he wasn't supportive. I mean, he wasn't supportive, but he wasn't not supportive. It just kind of that that 12 months, the wedge that was already there just grew bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it was lockdown 2020. So I'd been sober for over a year. Mm-hmm. It was that lockdown being locked in the house together with the kids, the stress. Remember those initial? Yeah. <gasps> What's happening to the world? That was what kind of broke us in the end. But it was, yeah, the marriage was never going to last mm-hmm. unless he, and not blaming him, but we had to kind of be on that same path together. You had to grow together. We had to grow together. Yeah. Yeah. And so he chose not to. I don't think he was ready. Mm-hmm. And so what happened with the marriage? So we divorced, was separated in early 2020, and that was it. We were done. You know, I look back and I think about that time. And that 12 months was almost like I was laying the foundation for my new life. That's how it felt. I started to lose weight. I started to meet more like-minded people. And I went and decided to become a life coach Mm -hmm. and started to take on clients pro bono and just loved this whole new world that I was creating. I was still working, but I was also doing this amazingly inspiring, beautiful work on the side. And then met Jen, the ex-thrivalist co-founder, and we had an amazing relationship and we built this business together. And so all of these really great things are happening in my life. And there was just this voice and it was just getting louder and louder. Like you have to get out of this marriage. I would often wake up in the middle of the night with panic. It was really scary. It was a really overwhelming knowing that, you know what, alcohol is so good at masking those feelings. Yeah. It just like blocks your intuition. But being sober, it was like, I don't have a mask anymore. This is like, there's no veil. This is, I can see everything so clearly. I knew that if he wasn't willing to stop drinking and to do the deeper work yeah. of the soul searching and the looking at root causes and, and being willing to have those deep conversations with me, we weren't going to grow as a couple. Yeah. yeah. And I guess it was that inner knowing of like, I'm not in love with this person anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted love, mm-hmm. as you know, mm-hmm. but I've always believed in like a, a beautiful love. Yeah. And I'd never really had it to be completely honest. Right. For me, I think because I had had that build-up of preparing, Mm -hmm. I was like by the time that we actually started to go through the navigating of the separation, I was emotionally prepared and more resilient being through it all. Mm. 
And so things fell into place for me really quickly. Like, you know, we talk about jumping off a cliff. When you jump off a cliff and you do something big in your life to clean up your life and to kind of show the universe you're worthy of whatever you want, Mm -hmm. I really think that you are rewarded in, in wonderful ways. And that's that was my experience. I started to, you know, Thrivalist was really successful from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Like those those first few months were like hundreds of women coming through and doing our course and being part of our community. How long had you been sober then for? By the time we launched Thrivalist for 18 months, mm-hmm. which is like so not much when you mm-hmm. think about it. But you really felt like this was. I felt so ready to. This was you. Yeah. That you always knew. Yeah. Yeah. Like Jen and I often talked about it feels like we've found this secret around how to get sober and stay sober Mm -hmm. that no one talks about. And you go to AA and that's something I skipped over before, but like I went to six months of AA and really didn't learn much at all. Like I sat around a table and said I was an alcoholic and cried and had, you know, support, but no one taught me that to be sober, sorry, to have a really happy sober life, there's this stuff that you've got to do and you need to educate yourself you need to decondition those subconscious beliefs and those that brainwashing that the alcohol industry and your you know society has given you. You've got mm-hmm. to go and do some work and connect with like-minded people and boost your dopamine in healthy ways and all of the stuff that I now help other women with. So nine weeks after separating, I went on Tinder, mm-hmm. actually probably eight weeks, let's be honest. Met a couple of frogs, as you do, kissed a couple of frogs yeah. and then met David and you know, I'm now in a really, my only ever healthy, happy relationship, Mm -hmm. which is genuinely incredible. And I'm so excited about my future. One thing that I found remarkable about when I heard that you'd met David is that you were both sober. I know. And that wasn't intentional. No. That maybe subconsciously, maybe on a soul level it was, but you weren't seeking to meet someone that was sober. No. I wasn't. And I was really clear about in my manifestation list of what I wanted in a man. Mm-hmm. And David is all of those things. But then he was sober as well. And I was like, oh my God, I did not even dream of this. And mm-hmm. it's so good. Mm-hmm. And not only is like to us now, like the word sober, I mean, is such a shit word. It means actually, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means like boring, basically. Oh, okay. And it's so not what we are. What we are is like so passionate about being healthy. Mm-hmm. David to the point of almost being obsessed, but like food most of the time, exercise mm-hmm. and just mindfulness, really taking care of our mental health, mm-hmm. really like being trying to be really good people in this world and do good things. Mm-hmm. And we're both very aligned in that respect. And we have very similar kind of ambitions and goals and dreams. And one thing that I think is wonderful about being with a partner who is sober as well or on the same journey as you is you can share your past. Mm. And you've both been through similar paths and through similar hurdles and managed to get through those hurdles on your own and met each other on the other side Mm. of those hurdles. So, and there's no skeletons in the closet. You don't need to be ashamed of doing certain things that maybe he didn't do himself, but you both shared a similar journey um, Mm. and and now on a similar journey in the future as well. Mm. I am really mindful of saying about the first few years of sobriety. It's not like, oh, it's easy. You stop drinking and everything falls into place and life's amazing. And you have to dig deep and you have to get really clear on the reasons for why you were drinking. And if you're not, they're going to slap you in the face, Yeah, you know, which, which happened to me. I had really bad anxiety through 2021 and I had to go back onto antidepressants for only six months, but just 
I hadn't dealt with that properly. I still wasn't properly regulating my nervous system, using mindfulness, you know, the meditation, all of the tools. Anyway, so I guess it's been a it's been a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. But I feel like now, as I'm four and a half years sober, wow, that's I know a great it's so good. five years is going to be really cool. Yeah, half a decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like everything is kind of falling into place. They say every seven years you're a brand new person. Yeah. So in seven years you'll be, you know, your complete sober self. Yeah. So I know that there's a lot of people out there that when they do go through a sobriety journey, there's lots of times where they try and they fail. Did you try and fail? And if you did fail at any points of time along the way, what were the things that really sort of got you through and made you be able to succeed? I was lucky to have not had like a whole, you know, lots of times of trying. I did try in 2017 Mm. and I think my goal was to get to three months and I got to two and I hadn't done any of the proper work. I hadn't prepared myself for a social occasion. I'd actually gone away for a weekend and hadn't told anyone I wasn't drinking, didn't have alcohol-free drinks ready, didn't have my plan ready to go, which is so important when we're socialising in sobriety to be so prepared. And so it all went out the window and I started drinking again. So for me, I'd had that one real big experience of properly trying. And then it was like the minute that I started to do all of the reading, so getting all the books, listening to the podcast, throwing myself into everything to do with sobriety, the more I learnt, the less I wanted to drink. I think I was really lucky that it was the beginning of this huge movement, this sobriety movement, which was like these books were coming out. Holly Whitaker had written an amazing book. She had the podcast Hip Sobriety and she wrote Quit Like a Woman and then Laura McCowan brought out an amazing book as well. So there were these resources mm-hmm. and it wasn't like I had to go to AA and kind of not that there's anything wrong with AA. It's fantastic for some people, but for me, I felt disempowered. Mm-hmm. I had another way to do it. Mm-hmm. You could do it on your own in your own time. Yeah. Sitting on the couch, reading a book, listening to a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And getting really excited. Sucking it was like, up. oh my God, this is really great. I can do this. I, I can, can be this. Yeah. And yeah. I can wake up tomorrow and watch the sunrise if I want. Yeah. I guess like looking at sobriety as what a gain and, you know, how my life is so much better mm-hmm. as opposed to any of the things that I thought that I was losing, which were all rubbish anyway. Mm-hmm. I didn't lose anything. Yeah. I literally didn't lose a single thing when I decided to stop drinking. No, no, you just gained yourself who you knew you really were. I feel like sobriety is such a great way. You know they how they say that success is just on the other side of where you are now. Mm. And I feel like sobriety is just such an incredible platform to jump off of and into such a wonderful place, you know, to be the person that you knew that you could always be and that you always were. I know. And more. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like I'm grateful. Yeah. That I was such a fuck up. Yeah. The contrast <laughs> really, <laughs> really helped you enjoy everything that you're experiencing today. What's one of the things that you're most proud of, out of this whole journey? Okay, I intuitively want to say like how I'm breaking this cycle for my kids, but then I actually think it's launching Thrivalist. Mm-hmm. Like actually, you know, yesterday we had a lunch with these women and they all pretty much said, thank you. Yeah. So actually helping people to change their lives mm-hmm. is incredibly rewarding. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Why don't we wrap up with one last question? For anyone that is feeling like 
that they are where you were and want to be where you are now. It might help them if you maybe describe what your life might look like today if you hadn't taken the step to quit alcohol when you did, you know, what what would your old life look like versus what your new life looks like now? Mm-hmm. I love that question. And it's actually something that we get all of our Thrivalist members to do when they sign up. Mm-hmm. It's part of the first module. It's like, let's do five years from now. Mm-hmm. If you keep going down this track, mm-hmm. keep drinking the way you're drinking, mm-hmm. let's do five years from now if you stop. So it's interesting. I'm coming up to four and a half, five years. So I mean, firstly, I I would never have left my marriage. It would have just, I would have stayed in it. Mm-hmm. So I would still be in that unhealthy, unhappy marriage. I'd still be, I mean, I'd probably be a lot sicker than I am now because of what alcohol would be doing to my body. I mean, I already had a shocking liver count and my skin was gross and I was overweight and bloated. So I'd be even worse than that. Mm-hmm. I'd be still smoking. So I'd be really unfit. And, you know, teeth yellow, yellow eyes, that whole thing, Mm -hmm. always kind of scrubbing my fingers to get the smell off because it was so gross. Mm -hmm. I'd be a really disconnected, anxious Mm mum and person, Mm -hmm. just disconnected and anxious, unhappy, Mm -hmm. negative. I would definitely not have my own business and be doing something that feels empowering but also inspiring, beautiful work. Yeah, and I'm sure by now I would have done something that, illegal or something bad Mm -hmm. in a blackout Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so thank god that that's not me anymore yeah versus today working in incredible business that feels like it aligns to the best version of who you are and not just that you're supporting other women to be that and do that for themselves too and having met life partner who matches who you are today Mm. it's so true they're worlds apart they're so yeah. yeah And just knowing that my kids, you know, will always get the best of me. Yeah. They'll always get, I'll try my best all the time. Yeah. I've Mm -hmm. got a much healthier role model to look up to and aspire to be like. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Which is very inspiring. Well, I know that you've inspired all of us and we all love where you are today. Love hanging out with you even more today than ever. And we're all just really proud and inspired by you. We Mm -hmm. see you, we see what you've done. And I think it's wonderful. And we love you. It's so beautiful. I love you too. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Thanks, lovely. I think this podcast is going to be a wonderful resource for people wanting to do exactly what you've done. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for doing this. No worries. And finishing at 222. Oh my gosh. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Thanks, beautiful. No worries. And that's it for the podcast this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and we'll be back next week. Lots of love. If you're not 100% sure about joining Thrivalist just yet, I'd like to direct you towards some free resources to get you started right away on your sober curious journey. You can head over to our website at www.thrivalistsobriety.com and read our member reviews. When you read about other women's success stories, it serves as a huge inspiration to get you started on your own. If we can do it, so can you. You can also head to the resources section of our website and listen to a guided future self meditation or calculate how much you'll save by taking a break from drinking. Plus, we've got loads of other free resources for you over there. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, join our free Facebook community, and please reach out anytime you may need some support at info at thrivalistsobriety.com.